Welcome to the Exploress. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. It's a Saturday night in New York City, 1925. Get excited, because we're going out on the town. You've just entered one of the city's most infamous hotspots, the Cotton Club. You order a sidecar at the bar and take a seat at your favorite table, all anticipation, as you wait for the night's entertainment to begin. The curtain sweeps back, revealing a black woman dressed to the nines and looking fabulous. She's not just wearing a beautifully fringed flapper dress. There's also a huge ostrich feather headdress. Every finger is dripping in diamonds and gold. She looks like a queen up there on the stage, one hip cocked as she smiles down at your table. And that's before she starts to sing. The crowd goes silent, mesmerized by the power of that voice and the emotion humming through it. This woman, proud and sultry, could lead armies with that voice and bring whole countries to their knees. Welcome to the final episode of season four. I can think of no better way to wrap up our time in the Roaring Twenties than by spending an evening with some of the most fabulous women in entertainment. Grab your best fringe dress, a diamond-collared leopard, and that good old razzle-dazzle. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout-out to some of my patrons. My newest pirate queens, Bryn, Brandy, Caitlin, and Janine. My warrior queens, Amanda, Alexis, Kate, Ika, Chelsea, Jessica, June, Neve, and Sloan, Samantha, and Sarah. My imperial empresses, Bridget, Alyssa, Faye and Whimsy Soapworks, Katie, Sumera, and Teresa. And my lady pharaohs, Cheryl, Cot, Kate, Kimberly, Laura, Lori, Sophie, and the fabulous Courtney's. Thank you to all of my patrons, who are a big part of what makes this show possible. For just a few dollars a month, they get access to exclusive bonus episodes, including one coming up about a 1920s all-lady crime ring, and another about one of the first self-made lady millionaires in America, as well as every episode early and ad-free, full interviews with guests, giveaways, and more. To find out all about it, just go to my website, theexploresspodcast.com. Before we can really get into all that jazz, we've got to try to understand what life was like for Black Americans in the 1920s. When the Civil War ended in 1865, it emancipated African Americans. But that doesn't mean it made them equal. Many had to start entirely new lives, with little money, support, or education. Many traded enslavement on Southern plantations for work and living conditions that weren't a whole lot better. For black men, voting was legal, but extremely difficult. In the South, it was pretty much impossible. And of course, black women couldn't vote at all. Black Americans were barred from certain neighborhoods, schools, jobs. They were paid less, more likely to work as unskilled laborers, more likely to live in poverty, and be barred from roles in public service. 
In the years after the Civil War, there was something called Reconstruction, a time when federal troops occupied the South to try and make its citizens obey the law. But by the 1870s, all that was over, and most Southern states had instituted what were called Jim Crow laws. These laws were meant to keep Black and White separate. That meant segregated schools, public transport, movie theaters, even water fountains. And while black facilities were supposed to be equal in quality, they rarely were. In 1896, the Supreme Court heard a case called Plessy v. Ferguson. The underlying case was based on a black man who boarded a whites-only train car in New Orleans and got arrested for his trouble. In a landslide 7-1 decision, the judges upheld the doctrine of separate but equal, legitimizing the righteousness of Jim Crow laws everywhere. And they were everywhere, including in the North. But for African Americans, the South was a particularly grisly place to be. By 1910, three out of every four black Americans lived on farms. Nine out of ten of them lived in the South. But they were starting to flock to the North's largest cities in what would come to be called the Great Migration. During the 1910s and 20s, Chicago's black population grew by almost 150%. Cleveland's by 307%, Detroit's by 611%. The North offered more jobs and opportunity, but it wasn't free of discrimination and exclusion. The Great War only underscored the frustrating disrespect they often had to endure. More than 350,000 African-American men served for the American Expeditionary Force, or AEF. 40 to 50,000 of them served under French commanders. The 15th Regiment, dubbed the Harlem Hellfighters, spent more time in continuous combat than any other American unit of its size, 191 days in the trenches. They suffered more losses than any other American regiment and were awarded more French legions of honor for bravery than any other. Imagine how they felt when they came home to a country where many not only didn't appreciate their service, but showed them open contempt. Things escalated in what was called the Red Summer of 1919. There were some 25 race riots in some 50 cities across the country. White mobs attacked black people and invaded their neighborhoods, burning black businesses and homes. That included 97 recorded lynchings. These brutal public executions, carried out without due process by lawless mobs, continue throughout the 1920s. And while some white people were lynched, for what, you ask? helping black people or being anti-lynching, as well as some immigrants, 72% of its victims were black. White people accused them of murder, rape, arson, robbery, and vagrancy, whether they had any proof of said events or not. Lynchings involved hanging victims from trees, as well as torture, mutilation, decapitation, and desecration. Large crowds often attended, Photos of lynchings were sometimes even sold as souvenirs. These unlawful murders were continuously used in the South to terrorize and try to control black people. In 1920s America, the specter of race-based violence is everywhere we look. We also can't talk about race in the 1920s without mentioning the Ku Klux Klan. The white supremacist group we all love to hate first rose up out of the ashes of the Civil War, but it saw a massive revival during the 20s. Remember that 1915 blockbuster we talked about last episode, Birth of a Nation? The silent film that romanticized the founding of the KKK? That didn't really help matters. 
By 1925, more than 50,000 hooded members of the KKK, both men and women, were marching through Washington. Imagine being a black American, or any American who values justice, watching them walk proudly and freely through the streets. In the 20s, we also see many cities adopt residential segregation ordinances meant to keep blacks out of predominantly white neighborhoods. But look, when one neighborhood doesn't want you, you turn your back and start your own. Black Americans create cities within cities during the 20s, places where they can build and celebrate community. Harlem, in Upper Manhattan, is the largest of them all. Some 200,000 African Americans live there in the 20s, attracting black intellectuals and artists from far and wide. Artists like Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston help ignite what's called the Harlem Renaissance, a flowering of black artistic and cultural expression that produces some of America's most famous music, art, dance, and writing. But it also extends to cities like Chicago, creating links with African tradition and cultivating a sense of black identity on a scale that America has perhaps never seen before. By the 1920s, white Americans are getting increasingly obsessed with black art and culture. But it's not really a new development. The trend goes back to the traveling minstrel shows of yore. In the mid-1800s, both black and white actors called minstrels put on shows, often while painted up in blackface, performing caricatures of slaves on plantations to make their audiences laugh. In fact, that's where the term Jim Crow comes from. He's a popular minstrel character. Minstrel shows were almost like the first national television. Minstrel troops traveled around, which meant that everyone was seeing the same songs and skits and jokes. It developed a national humor. Unfortunately, some of that humor was racist to its core. These shows often characterized black people as lazy, ignorant, criminal, hypersexual, even subhuman. So why were so many black performers playing any part in them? because they were the only integrated entertainment work they could get. By the end of the 1800s, minstrelsy was making way for vaudeville. And while it started turning its back on blackface, in theme, it wasn't a whole lot better. Vaudeville shows were variety shows, usually featuring around a dozen performers, loosely organized into musical and dance acts. They were more fun to be in than minstrel shows, chaotic, full of impromptu and spontaneous performances, as well as a new, hot, sexy form of music called ragtime, great for dancing and taking the nation by storm. Still, vaudeville was usually all about black performers romanticizing the Southern past for their audiences. They featured plantation songs, demeaning jokes, and stereotypical and frankly racist characters. But vaudeville gives the enterprising and talented lady a way to make a name for herself and to make more money than she might doing anything else. It's a hard economy for a black woman in America. Those in the South are often reliant on sharecropping, succeeding or failing on the tide of the harvest. As they flood into the North, the jobs waiting for them there are likely in domestic service, which many find demeaning. Some strive for industrial or factory jobs in the garment or tobacco industries, as they tend to pay better. But though more than twice as many black women are in the labor force as native-born white women, they are often getting paid a whole lot less. 
A study conducted in one American industry found that 50% of the 177 women interviewed received $10 a week or less. The minimum weekly wage is supposed to be $16.50. In one candy factory, a forelady told an undercover investigator, The colored girls start at $8 a week. Of course, they wouldn't pay a white girl that. So imagine being a sharecropper's daughter who comes across this ad in the local paper. Wanted. A girl for vaudeville. One that can sing. Experience unnecessary. Must be reliable. $20 a week. Ethel Waters, who will go on to become one of the era's most famous singers, started her working life clearing dishes at an automat for 75 cents and one hot meal a day. By contrast, singing got her $2 a day. So you can see why so many black women take up jobs as chorus girls, cabaret dancers, jazz and blues singers, vaudeville entertainers, and musicians. Some of them even get rich and famous doing it. But it isn't easy for a black entertainer to break out in vaudeville. White entertainment circuits book acts into their vast network of theaters all around the country, but black troops have a harder time breaking in to perform for white audiences. The most prominent black circuit of the time is called the Theater Owners Booking Association, nicknamed TOBA, or to some, Tough on Black Asses. For 25 cents, patrons can watch a variety show that lasts from two to four hours, full of dancing girls, comedians, blues singers, snake or magic acts, or even a jazz band. Many black vaudeville acts perform in more rural areas of the South as part of itinerant tent shows. Touring companies will announce their arrival in town with brass bands, sporting matches, and smaller performances before the main event. They perform to both black and white audiences, though the two are forced to sit on opposite sides of the tent. Awkward. Black entertainers on the circuit also have to deal with bad or absent housing, cramped dressing areas, poor lighting, racist managers, and schedules that tend to change on a dime. In the South, they deal with the strictures of segregation and all the dangers that come with it. Bessie Smith had to learn the ways of the South quite quickly. On trains, she learned that food had to be packed beforehand because most dining cars were off-limits. Once she arrived in a town or city, she headed for a colored boarding house, which often didn't have indoor plumbing or electricity. Sometimes, when a town had no black boarding houses, she had to sleep in an empty building. Entertainers on the toba are often greeted with signs in a town telling them what parts of the town to avoid and what stores and restaurants they won't be welcome in. Even vaudeville's most famous black singers have to face perilous conditions. During a tent show in South Carolina, Bessie Smith is told that she should run as six hooded KKK members come marching toward her tent. Instead, the songstress storms out to meet them. I'll get the whole damn tent out here, she said. Just pick up them sheets and run. And you know what? They did. Meanwhile, when Ethel Waters is in an automobile accident in Birmingham, Alabama, white passers-by do nothing to help her. Finally, some black bystanders take her to a hospital, where a white doctor makes her walk on a torn tendon to the Negro quarters of the hospital, where she is ignored and has her money stolen before a white nurse finally takes some pity on her. 
And these women are some of the most respected in the biz. Show business is also a man's world, and it's hard for a black female entertainer to gain control over her earnings or her purse strings. But these traveling shows offer black performers opportunities to play for more money and wider audiences. It's a place to cut their teeth, to make connections, to be seen, to work their way into the spotlight. Vaudeville gives them a chance to really soar. The 1920s ushers in what turns out to be rather a boon for all performers, prohibition. Suddenly, there are thousands of speakeasies that need good nightly entertainment. Musicians who are earning $1.50 a night in dance halls can make a whole lot more at upscale clubs and mansions. Turns out, everyone wants to shimmy to the music that will come to define the 20s, jazz. Jazz grows and matures in big cities like Chicago and New York but its roots grew out of the rich soil of New Orleans. It was shaped by the city's black population, influenced by African percussive beats, Caribbean rhythms, and the call and response of the Baptist church, brought in by the formerly enslaved people who flooded there from the Mississippi Delta. They also brought another revelatory kind of music, the blues, but more on that in a minute. Jazz's biggest influence was probably ragtime, a uniquely American style of syncopated instrumental music, usually centered around the piano. But jazz introduced and centered the sounds of a brass band, and it wasn't afraid to get very sexy. In fact, most of the truly great jazz being played at the turn of the century in New Orleans was emanating out of its red-light district, called Storyville. The name jazz is rumored to have come from the jasmine perfume the city's sex workers wore. No surprise, then, that a lot of people were nervous about what some would come to call the devil's music. It's true that one of the things people loved about jazz and ragtime were that they were excellent to dance to. And we're not talking your mama's foxtrot. They inspired racy dances like the Black Bottom, the Grizzly Bear, and the Charleston, which many thought were corrupting America's youth. Two famous white dancers, Irene Castle and her husband, made such dances more palatable to the masses, and they were super popular. But they couldn't have done it without their all-black jazz band. And while many of the most famous early jazz stars are men, there are plenty of women blazing a trail alongside them. Women like Lizzie Miles, Edna Hicks, Baby Briscoe, Daisy Lowe, Yvonne Bush, Eone Golden, and Mickey Stevens. There are all women jazz bands traveling throughout New Orleans, like the International Sweethearts of Rhythm and the Harlem Playgirls. Louis Armstrong, one of the most important and iconic jazz musicians of the century, might not have made it as far as he did without his piano-playing wife, Lil Hardin. When he joined her band, she was a very talented musician in her own right, and she really polished him up and pushed him to step out into the spotlight. But some of the most famous black women performers of the day aren't playing instruments. They are singing the blues. Often built on just three chords, allowing for a lot of variation, blues music was truly forged in the heart of black Americans. Soulful, confessional, and personal, blues are about expressing heartache and then finding ways of expelling it. And in the early years, and throughout the 1920s, it is effectively a female art form. As one 1926 study observed, upwards of 75% of the songs are written from a woman's point of view. Among the blues singers who have gained more or less national recognition, there is scarcely a man's name to be found. 
By the 1920s, blues and jazz have essentially fused, becoming a hugely popular and swiftly growing industry. Let's let some of the era's biggest stars lead us on. Ma Rainey was born Gertrude Pritchett in Columbus, Georgia in 1886. She would become famous for a myriad of talents. Minstrelsy, traditional blues, country blues, popular songs, comedy, dance, and acting. In 1904, she married dancer, singer, and comedian William Pa Rainey, and together they became a leading song and dance duo on the black tent show circuit. From 1906 to 08, they were known as blackface song and dance comedians, jubilee singers, and cakewalkers. Wherever they went, they dazzled audiences. By 1917, the woman officially billed as Madame Gertrude had gained the affectionate nickname Ma, and she was very much a minstrel star. Ma Rainey had one goal, to move and please all who came to see her. She would saunter out in grease paint and powder, decked out in sequins, beads, rhinestones, and ostrich feathers, defying the idea that black didn't mean beautiful. At a time when most black chorus girls are very light-skinned, and lighter skin is considered more fashionable, the very dark-skinned Ma Rainey dresses lavishly and garishly, which makes her rather a trailblazer. As jazz pianist Mary Lou Williams will later say, Ma was loaded with real diamonds in her ears, around her neck, in a tiara on her head. Both hands were full of rocks, too. Her hair was wild and she had gold teeth. What a sight. She dresses like an absolute queen, making her black audiences feel that perhaps they can also be confident and glamorous. She sings about the things that affect many black women. Mistreatment, desertion, revenge, infidelity, sex, and alienation allowing them to see themselves in her songs. That said, she is almost unheard of outside the South until she's picked up by Paramount Records in 1923. Of course, they make it seem like they somehow discovered her. But when they announced, Discovered at last, the mother of the blues, Ma had been slaying shows for nearly 25 years. She makes 92 records during the five years she works for Paramount, accompanied by some of the era's best musicians and influencing every single black singer who comes after. She always provides coaching to newcomers, including a young gal named Bessie Smith. Bessie grew up poor in Tennessee and learned quite early that music was the fastest way to help her family. She started by singing on street corners, but soon she was performing in minstrel shows. In the 1910s, she joined Ma Rainey's Moses Stokes Traveling Show Troupe and toured with them on the toba. Bessie really styled herself after Ma Rainey, and she will become just as much of a legend. She is hugely popular with black audiences, and especially the poorest amongst them, expressing feelings they have trouble putting into words. She speaks for them because she's one of them. But she dresses just as fancily as Ma Rainey. She wears curve-hugging, fashionable flapper dresses, trimmed in fringe, feathers, lace, or preferably, all three. 
She presents by turns as both flirtatious and sophisticated, and her presence fills a room as soon as she enters it. As guitarist Danny Barker once said, Bessie Smith was a fabulous deal to watch. She dominated a stage. She could bring about mass hypnotism. When she was performing, you could hear a pin drop. Bessie is a heavy drinker, is jealous of any rivals, and is known to occasionally get violent. But there's no denying that she is one of the most influential and fascinating stars of the 20s. One of the reasons singers are able to become so widely famous in this era is because of the popularity of music records. The first commercial jazz record was made in 1917, and it sold more copies than any record before it. But rather strangely, it was performed by the original Dixieland Jazz Band, which was completely filled with white musicians. The main guy in the band would go on to say that it was white dudes like him, not black people, who invented and popularized jazz. <laughs> Yikes, man. But jazz only really found its national groove when black artists started recording discs themselves. At first, record labels create what they call race records, music produced by black people and meant to be bought by black people. Some producers thought they wouldn't sell, because black people wouldn't go out and buy record players. They were, turns out, extremely wrong. They bought them in droves, and those who couldn't still purchased records, playing them at community dances and barn bashes and at rent parties. A 28-year-old singer named Mammy Smith, no relation of Bessie's, was one of the first to prove just how successful such records could be. In February 1920, she walks into OK Records in New York City and makes history by recording two songs, That Thing Called Love and You Can't Keep a Good Man Down. It is the first recording by a black blues singer, but her biggest hit comes later that year with Crazy Blues. <laughs> And the people love it. Within a month, black audiences have purchased 75,000 copies. By the end of the year, it has sold a million. This totally upends the music industry, revealing a huge appetite for records made by and for the black community. Labels such as OK, Paramount, and Columbia rush into the race records market, making recordings by dozens of talented black singers. Unfortunately for them, white labels find it much easier to exploit and underpay black artists than white ones. Since many of these songs had never been previously published, labels make sure to grab recording rights along with the actual recordings. That means many of these women end up going under pseudonyms, or their names are left out entirely, and thus they aren't able to leverage these recordings into successful performance careers. Some of these records are recorded without any contracts at all, and without the artist receiving royalties. By the mid-1920s, these record labels have gone one step further, sending scouts armed with recording equipment to shows in the South, recording artists whose names we might never know. In 1921, Black Swan Records is born, a fairly novel company whose employees and artists are all black. Bessie Smith is rejected by Black Swan because they deem her voice too rough, aka too black-sounding. 
They also think her skin is too dark and her behavior a little too wild. This isn't a new frustration for Bessie. Back in 1912, she was kicked out of a chorus line for being too dark-skinned. But Columbia is more than happy to have the woman many will come to call the Empress. Her first single, Downhearted Blues, sells 780,000 copies in the first six months, more than any other blues record. She becomes America's first real musical superstar. Columbia is so pleased that they sign an eight-year contract with Bessie, and she goes on to record 160 songs. Even though Bessie Smith makes them millions of dollars, she is never paid any royalties. Which, in my opinion, is pretty rude. But don't worry, Bessie still manages to earn more and spend more than anyone else. By the 20s, Bessie is so popular that she is commanding $2,500 a week, making her one of the highest paid black performers of the era. She will also be one of the first black singers featured in a moving picture, singing her heart out in the 1929 talkie, St. Louis Blues. In 1925, she purchases her own custom-painted bright yellow railroad car. It has seven staterooms and can accommodate up to 35 people. And it has hot and cold running water so her whole crew can live on the train. When the Empress arrives in your town, you best believe she's doing it in style. Ethel Waters, by contrast, is chosen by Black Swan Records because her style is more in line with white singers of the day. Born at the turn of the century, Ethel spent a hard childhood in poverty in Philadelphia's Red Light District, bouncing around between family members whom she felt didn't really understand her. Like many blues stars, she married early, around age 13, and ended up with an abusive husband. She left that guy and worked as a maid to support herself at a Philadelphia hotel. On her 17th birthday, she went to a party at a nightclub, where she sang two songs and so enchanted her audience that someone offered her a job singing at Baltimore's Lincoln Theater, where she performed under the name Sweet Mama Stringbean. After traveling the vaudeville circuit, she joins a musical review, performing a number in blackface dressed in typical plantation-style gingham. It's there she learns that, unlike country southern audiences, New Yorkers want to hear her lyrics. So she works on her diction and articulation, which makes her sound different, i.e. whiter, than the other songstresses around her. She almost single-handedly puts Black Swan on the map with Down Home Blues, selling something like 100,000 copies. She becomes a huge favorite with white audiences, introducing them to many blues classics and she goes on to become the first black woman to integrate Broadway. The blues provide these women with an unprecedented new area for self-expression. The songs they sing call out the demons and frustrations that plague women, particularly black women, and exercise them in public. Many speak to the difficulties of being a working-class black woman, Washwoman's Blues, for example, is a tribute to the ladies who spend their days cleaning houses and scrubbing floors. We see social protest. In Poor Man's Blues, Bessie Smith sings, Mr. Rich Man, Rich Man, open up your heart and mind. Give the poor man a chance. Help stop these hard, hard times. But really, no subject is off limits. 
They sing about abusive relationships, which many of these singers experience. They sing about marginality, about segregation, and about sex and sexuality. Many take aim at the men in their lives, mocking and deriding them. Many of these women are bisexual or lesbians, and they sing about that openly, too. Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey, Gladys Bentley, and Ethel Waters all have female lovers. In 1928's Prove It On Me, Ma Rainey sang, I went out last night with a crowd of my friends. It must have been women, cause I don't like no men. Wear my clothes just like a fan. Talk to the girls just like any old man. Bessie will have to bail Ma Rainey out of jail one time when the cops arrive to bust up her lesbian orgy. And to that I say, good on you, Ma. But one performer is living her best lesbian life even more loudly and proudly than her counterparts. That someone is a tuxedo-wearing, tawdry, song-belting showwoman named Gladys Bentley. She first arrives in Harlem around 1925 after leaving her hometown of Philly. She first starts singing at rent parties. At these parties, she sings songs so raunchy that it would make even Ma Rainey blush. And when she moves on to singing in clubs, she pushes the envelope even further by dressing in a full white tuxedo. She is often promoted as a male impersonator and has no problem whatsoever with flirting openly with female audience members. Instead of trying to water herself down, she leans in, shocking the media by telling one report that she not only married a woman, but that she was a white woman. And while there's no evidence for such a marriage, it says something about how unapologetically open Gladys was and the freedom of expression these women found on the stage. But singing isn't the only art form that black women are dominating in the 20s. The chorus girl is also shimmying her way into America's hearts. Thanks to vaudeville, black dancers have been growing increasingly popular. By 1913, Harlem had a show called The Darktown Follies, one of the earliest large-scale musical reviews created and performed by an all-black cast. It shared some elements with vaudeville, but the plot focused on a romantic storyline between two black characters. This was a pretty new thing. It also brought social dances like Ball in the Jack and the Texas Tommy into the spotlight. Ethel Williams, the show's star, got so famous she went on to train the white Ziegfeld Follies girls in how to perform these black dances, which had become wildly popular with white audiences. Of course, Mr. Ziegfeld would make sure his show didn't tip its hat at all to the Darkdown Follies, and then he barred those very same black dancers from ever auditioning for him. It happens all the time in the 1910s and 20s. White producers flock to the big cities in search of new dances and sounds, steal them, and get white musicians to record them. Black dances are appropriated by dancing teams like Vernon and Irene Castle. White performers get famous with their acts on Broadway, while black dancers are relegated to segregated vaudeville circuits. But that doesn't mean there aren't black dancers shimmying their way to stardom. One of the things chorus girls have to deal with is a reputation. Some people see them as little better than ladies of the evening. But by the latter half of the 20s, many are celebrated as inspiring examples of black womanhood. 
Part of this shift in attitude has to do with the growth of black beauty companies. I'll be talking about one of them and its incredible founder, Madam C.J. Walker, in an upcoming bonus episode on Patreon. Many chorus girls become models for their advertisements, making them more glamorous than ever. As one 1928 Pittsburgh Courier article wrote, The chorus girl has forced recognition of the beauty and charm of the colored woman, not only from the outside, but has awakened the Negro woman herself to her own possibilities, which feat may be considered the greater accomplishment. But to find out more about chorus girl life, we're going to join one of the most iconic black performers of the day, Josephine Baker. Josephine was born in St. Louis, Missouri, to a washerwoman and a drummer. After her dad split the scene, her mother remarried. Really, she had to in order to pay the bills. Still, they had to move often, living in rat-infested shacks. For escape, Josephine would try to go to the black vaudeville houses in her neighborhood. She left school to help earn money for her family, offering to clean houses, babysit, even sift through the trash to find food. Eventually, she joined a family band performing in cafes and restaurants, where she proved to have a knack for comedy. As far as she was concerned, there was nothing quite like making an audience laugh. When she finally left St. Louis, she remembers, Closing my eyes, I dreamed of sunlit cities, magnificent theaters, and me in the limelight. <laughs> As we've already covered, traveling on the black vaudeville circuit can be tough, and eventually she goes to New York City, hoping for something a little more stable. In 1921, she auditions for an all-black Broadway musical called Shuffle Along, only to be told she's too young to be a chorus girl. The musical is a hit, so when Josephine hears that a second Shuffle Along company is being formed for a road tour, she tries again. And she's rejected again for being too young and also too skinny. But she takes a job helping out with their costumes. And when one of the regular chorus girls falls ill, you best believe Josephine elbows her way onto the stage to cover for her. And she steals every scene she's in. But there are some uncomfortable confrontations. Nearly all the chorus girls, both here and in the swankier city nightclubs, are light-skinned. Which makes Josephine stand out. Some of the cast members take to calling her the monkey and play tricks like gluing her shoes to the floor. None of this stops Josephine. She eventually moves on to a new musical called The Chocolate Dandies, then takes on a role as a chorus girl at the Elite Plantation Club. Now, in the 20s, most clubs are segregated. Some, especially those run by African-American entrepreneurs, are welcoming of all races. Integrated dance halls, known as Black and Tans, become popular in places like Harlem. Some oppose such wild racial mixing, saying they encourage women to drink to excess and express themselves with coarse and vulgar dancing. And to be fair, the dancing is fairly scandalous, usually featuring flailing limbs and the 1920s equivalent of twerking. But many of the most popular clubs cater exclusively to white patrons, even though the entertainment is almost exclusively black. White revelers prefer to listen to jazz music played by black musicians or to see black dancers do the cakewalk in the Charleston because they think it's more authentic. As one contemporary writes, In their dancing and song, the Negroes are the very embodiment of rhythm. They are natural-born musicians. Beautiful voices abound among them. They have a rare vein of melody. 
Their talent for acting is remarkable. There is, of course, rather a dark side to this voyeuristic fascination. Musical reviews often cater to white audiences' tastes for plantation stereotypes. Famed dancers Edith Wilson and Florence Mills star in the Dixieland Plantation Room Review, put on in a Broadway theater, which includes scenes of a Mississippi steamboat landing in a cotton field surrounded by watermelons. Reviewers of these black reviews often compliment dancers by calling their moves things like savage, exotic, and primitive. White thrill-seekers go to places like the Cotton Club and the Plantation Club, decorated with Old South decor and featuring black slave dancers, as a type of exploitative tourism to be entertained by white ideas about blackness. Josephine herself sums up the bizarre situation quite nicely. The white imagination sure is something when it comes to blacks. Opened in 1923, New York's Cotton Club becomes one of the most popular in the city. Visitors from around the world come here to drink and enjoy music and dancing courtesy of the Cotton Club Girls. Also known as the Copper-Colored Gals, these chorus girls and singers are all light-skinned, and they have to meet pretty exacting criteria. They have to be at least 5 foot 6, under 21, thin, and light-skinned enough to pass the brown paper bag test. This involves holding a brown paper bag up to their face. If their skin tone is lighter than the bag, they're in. If not, they're out. Even some of the most famous performers, like Ma Rainey, will sometimes wear grease paint to lighten her complexion. Why? Because many producers think that white audiences won't find darker girls beautiful. One reviewer wrote, I hate to say it, but both white and colored producers show this prejudice towards the dark girl. They want girls to look as nearly white as possible when they're on the stage, although the extremely dark girl is nine times out of ten the better dancer. But the black girl hasn't a chance in the chorus of today. Josephine's about to prove them very wrong. So that's what these ladies are dealing with. But hey, the Plantation Club features blues singer Ethel Waters, the waiters speak French, and the mobsters and millionaires who fill the audience think Josephine's a real winner. It's not just that she's lovely to look at, either. Josephine is truly funny. Beautiful. She wrote later, I was born with good legs. As for the rest, beautiful? No. Amusing. Yes. The chorus girl's life can seem glamorous, but generally speaking, it's pretty exhausting. It requires constant motion and a lot of strain on the body. And because those bodies are often gyrating for a drunken audience, they sometimes find themselves in dangerous situations. They're often grabbed or subjected to inappropriate advances by customers and staff members alike. Ethel Waters, when she was working at a club called Edmonds, had a boss who slapped her posterior one time, to which she responded by kicking him right on his. In some clubs, it's an unspoken part of the job for chorus girls to make themselves available to certain customers after the show. Josephine navigates it all, making audiences wild with her unique brand of dance and humor. In 1925, she is approached by a producer who wants her to star in a new black vaudeville show in Paris called La Revue Negra. Of course, this show is also filled with racial stereotypes. She dances the Charleston surrounded by mammies, but she does it so well that guards have to be hired to keep her adoring public from rushing the stage. 
And she loves Paris. She can go wherever she wants, and she's treated well, which makes something of a change from her time in America. Josephine is only 19 years old when she first appears on the stage of Folie Bergère in 1926. The show features a steamy jungle setting, and Josephine wearing nothing but a skirt made out of bananas. I wasn't really naked, she would write later. I simply didn't have any clothes on. Those swinging fruits and the hips that make them shimmy make her an instant, irrefutable star. That year, she receives more than a thousand marriage proposals by mail, is one of the most photographed women in the world, and owns a leopard named Chiquita, whom she walks down the streets of Paris wearing truly fabulous attire. In other words, Josephine is winning. <laughs> These incredible, hardworking, fearless black entertainers really did change America. They filled the air with their beautiful, moving music, speaking for the entire black population. Their provocative acts enthralled and inspired. They proved that black women could not just make it in America, but make that country bend around them. And while they still had to face so many hurdles and race-based discrimination, they left a mark that no one could erase. Until next time. That's it for Season 4. We'll be back in April with brand new episodes that'll take us to all new times and places. In the meantime, I'll still be dropping bonus episodes over on Patreon, so if you want more Explores in your life, that's the place to go. During this episode, we were lucky enough to get to listen to the sounds of many of the incredible musicians I just talked about, as they're all now in the public domain. Here's what we heard, in the order in which they first played. Ma Rainey's Booze and Blues and Shave em Dry Blues. Bessie Smith's Hard Driving Papa. Crazy Blues, the original version, performed by the Dixieland Jazz Band. Bessie Smith's Downhearted Blues. Mammy Smith and her Jazz Hounds version of Crazy Blues. Ethel Waters, The New York Glide, and St. Louis Blues by the Dixieland Jazz Band. You'll find the full list and links at my website, theexplorespodcast.com. That's where you'll also find show notes, including a transcript of this episode and some excellent images. You can find me on Instagram at theexplorespodcast. Thank you to the moon and back to Carly Quinn for her help researching this episode, and the following for their vocal stylings. Tangie, Katina, Damon, and my brother John. <laughs>